Hello, and welcome to the side gig episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. My side gig is hosting this here show, Slate Money. I'm here with Stacey Marie Ishmael of Bloomberg, whose side gig is also hosting Slate Money. And Indeed. Also, Emily Peck of Fundrise. I, I'm, I'm just going to say you have another side gig hosting Slate Money. I have so many side gigs, Felix. Like, can't even list them all. It take too long. You have a fortune column? I do. I have a fortune column. It's called Worksheet, and you can sign it's up. It's very good. We love side gigs here at Slate Money. We are going to talk about people with side gigs. We're going to talk about Jack Dorsey, who the, the CEO of Block, FKA Square, who also had a side gig running a company you might have heard of called Twitter. Um, he no longer, he just gave up that side gig. We're going to talk about the employees at BuzzFeed News who are being barred under their union contract from having any kind of side gigs at all. We are going to talk about the jobs report and what that says about employment. We are going to have a Slate Plus segment on Twitter and whether it should charge for subscriptions. It's a, it's a pretty jam-packed show, which I have to say is the most amazing testament to Shana Roth, the producer, who managed to overcome technical difficulties that have, would have floored anyone else. Thank you, Shana, and enjoy her amazing cut of Slate Money coming up. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to start by talking about stonks. I know that we have, you know, important stuff to talk about. Omicron and tapering and jobs reports and Jack Dorsey. And well, he's not important, but we'll talk about Jack Dorsey. But I want to talk about stonks because I think this is this BuzzFeed story is actually kind of important and interesting and marks an important new stage of the SPAC story that has been going on for the past, what, year or so. So, Stacey, Hello. as the former BuzzFeed employee, mm. you can you can tell us the news hook here. BuzzFeed is now a listed company on the stock exchange. How did that happen? They went full SPAC, <laughs> as, <laughs> as often happens. So they are merging with... Um, a SPAC called 895th Avenue Partners, which if I remember my BuzzFeed history correctly, is BuzzFeed's current address, um, in order to, you know, attempt to give some liquidity to its venture and various other investors who have been jumping up and down about when are you going to go public for a long, long time. But that is not going quite according to plan. 
I want to say that BuzzFeed has never been anywhere near 895th Avenue and that it's named after a fictional address in, in a Marvel movie. Oh, is it named after a Marvel movie? I really should know that. Uh, so, but what happened in the past couple of years? Yeah, it was, I, think it was, I think it was Howard Stark's townhouse. Okay, this makes it worse. <laughs> Three things happened this week that have made this a little bit more complicated. One is the 60 members of the BuzzFeed News Union walked out on the job to protest what they see as lack of progress in conversations about getting a salary floor and various other conditions of work agreed with management. And Dow Jones reported yesterday that investors have been withdrawing a bunch of the money that was held by the the SPAC ahead of their trading debut, which is scheduled for Monday morning. So the SPAC withdrawal thing is the thing that really um, I wanted to zoom in on here because I think it's very important. As, as you say, the way you become a public company these days, you can either just go public in an IPO, in which case you sell shares, to the public and those shares start trading on the stock exchange at a certain valuation and the amount of money you get, the, the amount of money that the public spends on those shares is money that goes straight into your um, treasury. The alternative is you do a spec where the public has already bought shares in this listed vehicle, which is just a, like a blank check company that's listed on the stock exchange, doesn't really own anything except for money. And then you merge with that vehicle that owns money and then the money goes to your treasury and it and you wind up with listed shares either way and they're basically two different ways of getting to the same place and one of the things that people said when the SPAC boom started about a year ago was that the SPAC offers much more certainty that with IPOs, you never really know how much money you're going to raise until like the day of the IPO. The pricing is uncertain. You never know how much demand there's going to be. People call off their IPOs at the last minute. They're expensive, blah, 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 blah. Whereas with a SPAC, you do this deal, the price is set, you know how much money you're getting, and you get your listed stock price. And there are pros and cons to both. But the narrative that the SPAC route is more predictable and certain has been completely exploded by this BuzzFeed deal and by other SPAC deals that are happening right now. Because when you buy your shares in the SPAC and the blank check company at $10 each, you reserve the right to withdraw them at $10 each and just take your money out instead of merging with the company. And this is a very, very simple, purely arithmetic decision that investors make. Like, I, I, One of the things that bothered me a little bit about the Dow Jones story was they were making it sound like investors weren't really into the idea of owning BuzzFeed, and so they were withdrawing their money because they didn't like the BuzzFeed business model or whatever. No, it had nothing to do with the BuzzFeed business model. The only question they care about is, are those shares trading at above $10 or below $10? Turns out the shares are trading at like $9.96. And so they are they have a choice, basically. They can get $10 for their shares by withdrawing their $10, or they can get $9.96 for their shares by allowing them to go public on the stock exchange. If you want to own BuzzFeed stock, it makes sense to withdraw your money at $10 and then buy it at $9.96, right? You make money that way. So there's no reason for anyone to hold on to the 
equity that they have in the SPAC. And that's why almost no one did it. The equity in the SPAC was like well over $200 million. I think it's like $217 million, something like that. And almost all of it got withdrawn. And this is really bad for BuzzFeed because BuzzFeed was counting on getting $250 million or whatever, you know, for itself that it could then use for acquisitions. It could use to pay its, you know, news journalists more money. It could do all manner of wonderful things with $250 million. And now that $250 million isn't there. It has a stock market listing, but, you know, that and $2.75 will get you on the subway. What they wanted was money, and they didn't get money. And this is a real problem with the entire model of going public via SPAC. Can I ask, but when they debut on Monday as BuzzFeed, whatever that ticker symbol is going to be, the 996 is out the window, uh, and it could be anything, right? I mean, it could well, go no, up. it'll be close to nine ninety six. I mean, like, who knows? Who knows what what will happen? But the everyone knows, right, on the stock market exactly what that stock is going to own come Monday. So the way it's trading today is presumptively where it's going to be trading on Monday as well. Like nothing really changes. The merger is priced in at nine ninety six. I guess. I get that BuzzFeed didn't get the money it wanted from doing this workaround to go public, but at the end of the day, it still goes public. So that's fine, right? Like it still has that end goal and it'll have a share price and maybe it goes up, maybe it goes down. It's 2021 and I feel like anything is possible. Sure, absolutely. The stock can go down, the stock can go up. Like that (laughs) is 100% possible. Breaking insights sweet money. (laughs) Yeah, but the main reason that the CEOs want to go public is that it's a way of raising equity capital. And that is not something that they have successfully been able to do with this particular deal. But maybe they will. I I don't, am I being crazy? Like it's a long road ahead. So now if they want to raise equity capital, they're going to have to do that in a secondary stock market offering. And they're going to have to say like, we're going to issue new stock um, this is going to dilute you by by a certain amount, you know, and and the presumption always is that when you do a secondary offering, that um, that weakens your share price because it increases the number of shares outstanding. I just want to add, in terms of what BuzzFeed is giving its union, it's incredibly insulting. They're offering a one percent raise to reporters at their company, which at a time of high inflation. And a salary floor of $50,000. And and most of their reporters are in high-cost cities. It just seems so insulting. Um, So it's hard to feel, I don't know, anything for these people. This is is another thing which is fascinating, is this negotiation, at least if you listen to the union and the company isn't really talking, but the union is saying, look, they're, they're really cracking down on us in terms of, like, we can't even do social media stuff. It looks like the BuzzFeed management offer is quite draconian in terms of what it allows employees to do. And and Stacey, I'm, I'm interested in, in what you think about this. Is this something that kind of makes sense from a new media company, that they want their 
that they see the value of like social media activity and they want all that value to accrue to themselves? It's not just social media activity. It's any activity that is potentially competitive to, you know, the long arm of the BuzzFeed empire, which because that empire is so big and so complex, includes everything from comedy to unsolved mysteries to news stories to cooking or or makeup tutorials or, or beauty, right? And... This is not particularly unusual, I think, in the context of how I'm seeing like media companies that are trying to be big multi-platform that want the ability to be like, we might be doing a TV show that this could be competitive with. We might be doing a podcast that this could be competitive with. But what is interesting about it is the valuation is so low from in terms of the lock-in for the quote-unquote talent, right? Like you are guaranteed $50,000 to lose the right to do any kind of outside work. And that is... Or even to put like a makeup tutorial on TikTok. Exactly. So it's both like outside freelance work, but anything like any outside non-BuzzFeed creative pursuit. Um, And I think that floor in this particular environment feels very low to the kinds of people who have the talent to do those sorts of things, right? Like we, one of the, there's a joke that I've been making with various of the members of the the BuzzFeed alumni that, you know, like the BuzzFeed to Netflix pipeline (laughs) is very aggressive. Like they've got, they've got folks in writer's rooms. They have folks working on sets. They have folks who were in like engineering and product um, popping up in all sorts of various and interesting places because the kinds of skills and experience and expertise, both on the news side, certainly, but also in like entertainment that, they, that you know, people who have kind of been through the BuzzFeed machine have are extremely in demand right now. And I think that BuzzFeed, like many other media organizations, feels threatened by, you know, the, the substack effect, although I think the substack effect is tapering out as various of those more high profile people go right back into the traditional media. Um, and it is certainly unusual, you know, there's a a woman at BuzzFeed named Katie Natopoulos who had a thread about she's now the longest tenured person in news at BuzzFeed. And one of the ways that she was hired initially is because of writing <laughs> that she was doing on the internet that folks at BuzzFeed saw and were like, you're really interesting. And that's that's so true in media, right? Like your currency isn't only the things that you are publishing under your official byline for your official employer right now. It's always been who you are in all these other forums because the way our industry has worked for so long, it's like, oh yeah, I was reading this thing or I was listening to this thing or I saw this thing. You should talk to that person, right? And that's a hard reality to confront both from the side of the employees and also the side of management. Like management is going to want to lock in for sure. It is in their interest to make sure that they have the monopoly on that, or indeed the, the, they're the monopoly buyer of that talent, as we've talked about in other contexts. Um, but it's not in the interest of the employee on the other end to kind of give up that right for $50,000 in places like New York and San Francisco. And this explains why so many media organizations have unionized over the past couple of years. It's certainly one of the reasons. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's the only one. Emily, would you care to comment on that? <laughs> I mean, I think... Media organizations have unionized because it's in workers' best interest to unionize, and a lot of the the workers inside media companies know that very well. I, I don't know, and they've been able to do it. I don't. That, that the best argument for unions is unions are good for workers, and I know management doesn't want you to think that, but like, 
at the HuffPost union, they they negotiated for three percent raise every year and higher salary floor. Um, and of course, BuzzFeed and HuffPost are now the same, owned. <laughs> but there are yeah. two different unions, right? There's the HuffPost union, there's BuzzFeed union. As a person in management and as a person who's been in management for such a long time, I completely understand why it is media company management are like, you work for us. Do your best work for us and don't compete with us on other platforms. I also completely understand as the person who's been on the other side of that negotiation why being told you have to lock up your talents for 50K is a difficult pill to swallow. To change the subject a little, there was a piece in Axios this week or last week that said the BuzzFeed's back is going to be um, like a test case for all media companies <laughs> going forward. We're saying here today that it is a disaster and a mess and BuzzFeed has lost. What does this mean for other media companies? Do we need to worry? I'm going to push back on those Axios people. So I don't, I, I don't know this news organization whereof you speak, but like the fact is that, as I say, this is just an arithmetic thing, right? If the share price of the SPAC was $10.47 instead of $9.96, then no one would pull out their money and it would be a success, right? It's a very small difference. It's a kind of like BuzzFeed got very unlucky here. And so if you price this back correctly, if you price your deal in a way that people aren't going to withdraw their money, then you should be fine. I think what what we're seeing here is a slightly over-optimistic valuation on BuzzFeed, um, which caused people to just say, like, I don't think it's worth $10 a share. And the, and you really want, when you're constructing a spec, you want to construct a spec that people are like, I don't know how much it's worth, but I know it's worth more than $10. In this case, people said, I don't know how much it's worth. I think there's a very good chance it's worth less than $10. And that's the last thing you want people to say on the day of the actual spec merger. So, so long as you get the, the valuation less wrong, than BuzzFeed did, or 895th Avenue did, then um, I think you should be okay. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Just to get to this question of, of unions, Stacey, what's the sort of hypothetical alternative, right? If BuzzFeed News didn't have a union... If they hadn't unionized, how strict would BuzzFeed management be about people putting makeup tutorials on TikTok? Is is the fact that everything has to be written down in a in a massive contract 
does that encourage management to wind up like taking a maximalist stance in the way that they maybe wouldn't necessarily do if everyone was just an at-will employee and there was no union? As somebody who worked there in, in the days before the union was a union, I can say that there has always, always, always been a tension between the fact that BuzzFeed attracted some of the most interesting, creative, accomplished people. I think of like Heaven and Tracy and Another Round. I think of um, Matt Belassi and, you know, um, I can't remember the name of his show. It was like Wine About It, W-H-I-N-E About It. Um, I think of the fact that, you know, millions of people watched a bloody watermelon explode on Facebook Live. There there was, it's a place that like many other media organizations, all media organizations are built on people. BuzzFeed was a place that was built on people that fundamentally understood the internet and the, the potential of digital in a way that it was, I think, had like the highest concentration of those people working in media at any one time in any one building. Um, and it was an incredible thing to see. And even then, folks were trying to figure out, hey, I started as an intern or I started as a fellow on an intern or a fellowship salary. I've now been here three years I am single-handedly responsible for X gigantic amount of your audience or viewership or traction or readership or whatever the metrics were, and not feeling that they were able to make any headway in having those skills be perceived as valuable to a level that they thought kind of commensurate with what they were adding to the company, which is, you know, again, the oldest story in media. Like, And in any industry, all of us are like, pay me more. I'm amazing. Um, but from a, you know, a market perspective, various of those folks left because they were like, I can make more money working somewhere else. I can make more money going independent. I can make more money going to work for Netflix. You know, so that talent war is real and has always been real. And this is, this is, I think, a public explosion of a conversation that folks at BuzzFeed have been having also very publicly (laughs) for, for a long, long time. Because if you, you know, if you Google like BuzzFeed Union or you search it on Twitter, it's like the the, the employee culture has always been, we're going to talk in great detail to everyone that will listen about what's happening here because that was the ethos of the place. <laughs> it's also worth pointing out that Jonah Peretti should know that side gigs matter because BuzzFeed was his side gig when he was at the post. <laughs> Indeed. So may- maybe that's the reason he's so strict about it. I saw some <laughs> quote somewhere where Jonah Peretti said something like, you, you you have your best creative thoughts in the shower and we want to own the shower thoughts. Uh, the shower thoughts quote was Dude, a real quote. what? <laughs> that, no, what? That, that did happen. No that one owns happen. my shower thoughts. You're in here. I don't but I mean, like, any I don't kind know. of company-owned technology to produce my shower thoughts and they are wholly mine. <laughs> I mean, fundamentally, this is a question about, you know, alienation of labor right and like and, and like what did what is the what is the state of the worker under capitalism but i think saying these things out loud still makes a lot of people uncomfortable there is always going to be a tension between the people who are on the hook for making the thing and the people who manage the thing and direct the thing and capture x share of value for the thing and that tension is like how is that value distributed back to the people who are making the thing versus the people who are directing the thing? Just to come full circle on this, now that BuzzFeed is not raising anything like the amount of money that it had been budgeting for in this spec, is that just going to make this labor negotiation much more fraught and tense? 
I mean, I don't know any labor negotiation that's not frozen tense on, like, on, a, on a day when everything's going amazingly. But I do think the economics here are challenging, right? It's it's the argument that, hey, you have made a bunch of money for a long time. Well, which is sort of mixed because they have not always made a bunch of money or for a long time. But you are the the economics from a management perspective of we had a financial plan based on these expectations. We're not currently seeing that these expectations are being met. That's going to compromise the financial plan. Like there's no way that doesn't ultimately trickle back down to a conversation about here's why these demands are even less reasonable from the perspective of the people who would have to spend the money to make it happen. I just realized actually it's not just Jonah who had a side gig going. It's also the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News. <laughs> Mark Schufs is also a professor at USC. <laughs> that is indeed true. Well, there you go. I had forgotten about that. I mean, yeah, if you pay people too little to live, they need side gigs. That's just the bottom line. You can't ask them to devote the, your, their lives to you and not pay them enough. Come on. I mean, the 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 logical, well, you could argue about whether you think this is logical, but the a natural extension of that conversation is always, if you don't think you're making enough money, walk. That's why the that's why the quit rate is so high uh-huh. right now. So Everyone's like, I don't think I'm uh-huh. making enough money, so I'm gonna walk. So we're back. We're back to the idea of quits and the great resignation. But people say that that's kind of a threat and that's unfair. That you know, especially if you're an at will employee, especially if you don't have union protections, like that's just the risk that you are facing all the time. And I think all three of us come from different generations in media, the thing that was unite that united us is you were constantly like texting people who were like, oh, so sorry, I just saw the news about the layoffs. <laughs> oh, so sorry, I just saw the news about the layoffs. Is there is there a drinks fund that I can contribute to? You know, it, there, there was a period every couple of years when getting to about now and everybody was looking at their books for the following year, it would just be like, well, we're letting go 10% of X newsroom or, you know, we're putting 15% of people on furlough or whatever those things might might be. Um, it's a grind. Like, there are a lot of people in media for whom that's been the reality for a very long time. And they don't necessarily want to have to keep jumping from place to place, feeling increasingly precarious. But they feel in a lot of cases like that's their only choice. Which is a perfect segue to talk about the jobs report that came out on Friday, which made no sense because I guess we have to nerd out a little bit I'm and say that... I'm truly confused by the jobs report that came yeah, out. The thing that, that, the thing that the people refer on? to when they say the jobs report singular is actually two different surveys. There's something called the household survey where they go along to households and they're like, did you get a job this month? And the household goes, yes. And 1.13 million people said, yes, I got a job this month. And then there's something called the establishment survey where they go around to employers and they said did you hire anyone new this month? And the employers go, yes. And if you count up the number of people who got employed, it was about 210,000 people, which is like less than a fifth. So we have two different surveys coming out with two radically different numbers. One survey, which does the unemployment rate, um, shows the unemployment rate dropping to 4.2%, which is crazy low. It's basically we're at full employment now. Um, The other survey... I think the general consensus being like people don't really believe it. But what's your takeaway, Emily? I feel like let's we've seen revisions to the um, employer survey, I believe, like for the past several months. So, okay. And they've been huge. And they've been really big. So today they said 210,000 jobs were created in November, but there's no reason 
I'm going to just lay on some double negatives. There's no reason not to think that that number is going to get revised upward and become more in line with the 1.1 million line. And it just kind of, I don't, I guess I don't believe it just anecdotally looking at the job markets now, looking at the quits rate, um, it doesn't seem right. <laughs> uh, I know that's not very scientific, but it just doesn't seem right. It's a, it's but a it workers' is. Like, market. This is it's it's actually extremely scientific. It's it's good old fashioned Bayesian reasoning. You're like, like I have a bunch of priors. There's a bunch of things which I know about the strength of the job market, about the quit rate, about how hard it is to hire, about wage inflation and all the rest of it and that has given me a baseline against which to judge any new piece of information and extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and the idea that the that the economy only created 200,000 jobs in November is a pretty extraordinary claim and we know that this number is open to revision and we also know that in a pandemic um the quality of these statistics declines and so for all of these reasons, we can take a we can take that number with a relatively large grain of salt. Yeah, and I don't think it'll change anything like the Federal Reserve. Jerome Powell testified this week that he's going to do the legendary tapering and stop buying so much, so many assets because we don't need to anymore because the economy is getting back to where it needs to be. I don't think this jobs report changes the taper plan. And which which brings up the. The dog that didn't bark, or possibly did bark, and we're all too deaf to hear it, which is Omicron. Are you you know, that right? is it the f- Omicron? Omicron? I've heard it Omicron. <laughs> <laughs> the variant. <laughs> the variant. Um, there was a bunch of like weird mini panic in the stock market this week about Omicron towards the end of last week. We all seem to have gotten over that pretty quickly. The consensus again here seems to be. This is possibly nothing to worry about to the point of which it might actually be a good thing. It's like a less deadly version of COVID. And if everyone winds up getting the less deadly version rather than the more deadly version, then isn't that good? And we should embrace the new variant. Um, I, You know, it's still very early days. And um, I sort of hate the idea of embracing a variant. <laughs> it's just like... I'm just like, but like, if Omicron is like is, is better than Delta, then like it's right. it's an improvement, right? So if if it outcompetes Delta, it does seem to be much better at infecting vaccinated people. But those vaccinated people, once they're infected, don't seem to suffer too badly. I think the big and this is where I put on my very large hat that says I am not an epidemiologist <laughs> or a virologist <laughs> or a scientist. I cannot wrap my head around risk assessment right now. And I feel like I've spent the past however many months of the pandemic it's been trying to figure out, is it worse to get a milder variant while infected, but risk infecting other people for whom even a milder variant is totally disastrous? Is, you know, do I just like go back into lockdown again if I ever want to see, you know, I have various friends and family having their 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 like having kids, like if, if I ever want to see them in the future, I need to sort of adjust my own risk profile because even if I will be fine, they might not be. And there's just no good answers to these questions. I will I like read every Twitter thread from people who are actually scientists being like, well, if you look at T cells, I'm like, I don't even, I barely understand what a T cell is. <laughs> I didn't, you know, and it's just, I, I feel like the, the cognitive load of this kind of life and death maths is really getting to me. It's been 
It's been almost two years of this, and I think there's just an element of how much how much more can we be expected to do? Like we two years is like twenty percent of my daughter's life at this point. Like we got to move there's, on. There's there's long COVID kind of and then there's COVID fatigue, and now we're just having yeah. like COVID fatigue. But people do like long COVID is a thing that's also happening, and like we don't know because it's so early in the life of this variant whether actually the thing that's going to suck about it is it you know it, 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 people are more likely to experience long COVID after. Just no idea. <laughs> just. I, I don't know anything about epidemiology, but I, I would say like with regards to the markets and the economy, the, the fact that there's a new variant, I feel like probably won't matter given the past 18 plus months of the economy kind of chugging along just fine. But maybe that's because you would argue what the Fed is doing because of fiscal policy, blah, blah, blah. No, but it's, I, it's I, not the Fed. It's not fiscal policy. It's the vaccines. Like it's overwhelmingly the vaccines that like new variants are terrifying when you when you don't have a vaccine. New variants, even if they are better at circumventing the vaccines than the old variants, are just so much less worrying when you have a largely vaccinated population. And I think that the new variant is going to have effects at the margin in terms of international travel. And we're going to see much more of this countries basically wanting to be seen to be doing something. And the first thing that they like to do when they want to be seen to be doing something is to say, uh, you know, is to put in new travel restrictions. And specifically, this is the one that just drives me up the wall. Specifically travel restrictions from the one country that did this right and and yeah, sequenced all Ugh. sequenced all of the tests so that they could see this new variant really growing which is south africa like the reason why it was found in south africa is not because it started there the reason it was found in south africa is because they're the only country that, that, that does enough sequencing to be able to notice this kind of thing in real time everyone should be thanking south africa for doing it right and instead they punish south africa and say you can't come into our country come on people and then when it was found inevitably in Europe, they were like, that's still fine. <laughs> and everyone, I feel like a lot of people, even Biden doing the travel banning is like, this really won't do anything. And it's like, but but wh why that? I mean, no, no one actually thinks it, it works. It just gets done for this window dressing element, right? I mean- Travel ban, there's no, there's <laughs> no evidence that travel bans work. And, you know, if you look at, I, I remember reading some, research about how fast viruses spread across the world even before the age of jet travel right before the age of airplanes viruses would spread across the world in like a week or two it's these things are just blazingly fast and you stop people coming in on airplanes you know at the margin it pushes back the date of Omicron expanding in your country, perhaps by like a few days. It makes no real difference at all. It's, it's theater. And, and I don't understand why it's become so socially acceptable and everyone thinks it's a good idea. People love the th theater of, of these kinds of things. I mean, think about like going through the metal detector and taking your shoes off at the airport or the fact that at, still at all these restaurants and stores I go to, they have those plexiglass barriers up, even though everyone knows they don't do anything. People like that. They're reassure Theater is reassuring yeah, to a lot of people. Security theater, years and years of taking off your shoes in TSA lines. <laughs> You know, yeah, that I think never that used to be a thing before the show. Psychological bomber. or something. Yeah. 
One guy with a shoe bomb and now. One guy. I have to see people's toes every time I try. <laughs> so, so like, just to, to wrap this up in terms of monetary policy, why not? Basically nothing here in terms of either viruses or jobs reports to persuade the Fed that it's doing anything wrong and the Fed's going to keep on doing what it's doing, which is is tapering, which means it's going to like stop having its foot hard on the gas and it's going to take its foot off the gas a little bit, although it's still a little ways off from starting to raise rates, which will probably be happening, who knows, in the middle of next year sometime. Ta-da. There you go, go, folks. Felix's forecast. (laughs) That's not my forecast. That's just the, the consensus market forecast. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Let's talk about blockheads. <laughs> If you, want to see, <laughs> if you want to see a photograph of Jack Dorsey and Larry Summers like in the, with their heads in the shape of a cube, um, Stacey, where should you go? You should go to block.xyz. <laughs> or the, for the, Which is the new homepage for the company formerly, formerly known, known as, as Square. <laughs> and they have an absolutely incredible... I have. I think I'm going to use the word experience because this is this is this it's is an what experiential it is. rebrand. Um, where on their leadership and you know like investors and executive site, they have instead of your boring headshots, instead of your illustrated headshots, instead of your pixelated headshots, they have people's faces, photographs of people's faces, superimposed onto blocks. And you can now, someone built a tool where anyone can put their face on a block. I almost you did too. it leading up <laughs> Could to be a blockhead <laughs> conversation. I was like, I'm going to put Felix's face on a block. Then I went down some internet rabbit hole and didn't do it. But this is a tool available to you. This is the first big move by Jack Dorsey, who's the CEO of Block, since he quit uh, his his side hustle. To be clear, he only quit Twitter. his side hustle like three days ago. <laughs> this, is, this is an accelerated timeline that we're talking about here. Uh, but anyway, he's quit Twitter. Like Jack Dorsey no longer runs Twitter. He is now laser focused on block. And because Stacey is here and she's the crypto queen, you can explain 
what the hell is going on? First of all, it was Facebook decide, deciding to change its name to Meta because Meta is Metaverse and Metaverse is Web3 and Web3 is crypto. And so it's like jumping onto this crypto bandwagon. Now it's Square changing its name to Block because Block is blockchain and blockchain is crypto. Um, you know, this is just like in the 1990s when everyone put .com on the end of their names. But people, but the companies doing that weren't, you know, hundred billion dollar companies now it's these massive companies which are doing that yeah i am professionally and personally obsessed with this because i think that (laughs) surprise surprise i think that one of the most interesting things that is happening here is cultural rather than economic and i saw a thread that i should have bookmarked but i did not where someone was saying if you are a social media ceo right now your life sucks Right. Like you you wake up every day, you got to testify to Congress. You have a bunch of people emailing you about genocides in Myanmar. And then you look over there and you see all these crypto people with their like fun ape avatars and optimism about the world, waking up every day and telling everybody good morning and raising a bunch of money to try to buy the Constitution. And it just seems like so much more fun. (laughs) And it seems like even if you have regulators potentially breathing down your neck, you haven't yet been accused of facilitating mass murder or making teenage girls depressed or, you know, succumbing to influence operations out of various other parts of the world. And there is a kind of optimism and interestingness and novelty that is very attractive to a lot of folks who've spent the past several years kind of grinding. Right. And so the idea is that we have the two most high-profile social media CEOs in the world, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, both making this decision to basically try to pivot as best they can from social media to crypto. Um, Zuckerberg did it in a really dumb way just by changing the name of his company. Dorsey did it by quitting social media entirely and just moving over to a different company, which he decided was going to be a crypto company. In terms of the Square rebrand, obviously, like from a Dorsey point of view, you can see what's happening here. From the Square point of view, do you think, Stacey, this makes sense. Like, if you are a board member, <laughs> I'd love to say this. Larry Summers is a board member of Square. And so, like, one day he gets a phone call from Jack Dorsey saying, I'm I'm thinking of changing the name of this company from Square to Block. If you are Larry Summers, what do you say? I am never going to pretend to have any idea what Larry Summers is thinking about anything at any time. Um, but the they're changing their corporate name to Block in the same way that, you know, the Google Alphabet... <laughs> Facebook, Meta. Yeah, Square still exists. Square still Facebook exists. still exists. Exactly. And Square is the consumer facing, you swipe your card in a coffee shop and hopefully tip your barista well. That that brand is still going to be Square. Um, and I think that is probably the right move because the universe of people who are ever going to care about blockheads on a website is like the people who listen to this podcast and then a bunch of us on Twitter. But you want to, you know, I think from a consumer-facing perspective, the less confusion you introduce into the market, the better. Well, from a consumer-facing p- perspective, the other big brand is Cash App, right? right. So And Tidal, um, which I did not know somehow. I had completely missed the Yeah, they bought Tidal owns. somewhere along the way. I was just going to step in and point out that social media is not only a, not a fun business to be in anymore for Mark or Jack or even Jonah, right? I mean, BuzzFeed is inherently a social media company. Um, 
Square, like if I'm Jack Dorsey and I have two jobs at Square and at Twitter, and I look at the fundamentals of each company, Square has been jamming. It's doing well. Its stock price is, is up and to the right, no problem. And Twitter has just kind of like gone nowhere since founding. Like it's just like kind of flatlined. It's not an interesting growing business. And he hasn't run it that way. In contrast to Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, they're all about growth, all about like whatever it takes. And we see like what happens there, democracy falls, blah, blah, blah. People get murdered, genocide, blah, blah, blah. Twitter decides <laughs> not to grow, but then doesn't grow. I guess it makes sense to me um, that A, that Jack Dorsey left Twitter to go to the business that's actually succeeding. And B, for some reason, it doesn't bother me that Square has become block because it's just like a three-dimensional transfer of of the name, right? It's just the Ha-ha, flat two-dimensional square <laughs> becomes the three-dimensional cube. And I feel like that's fine. It's fine. It's not like meta, which was just embarrassing. Does that mean that in five years' time, Block is going to rebrand as Tesseract? Yes, it does. That is what it or means. Or who's going to be the board, though? <laughs> like the, the ultimate block. Larry Summers, still. <laughs> still. <laughs> that's the, really, he always comes out on top of the, of the block. That's where I want to uh, continue this conversation a little bit in Slate Plus by raising the question of should Twitter become a subscription service? I've Isn't it already? Like as in something you have to pay money to use. We're going to talk about that in Slate Plus because I've seen some interesting arguments to that effect. But I think at this point we should probably have a numbers round and I'm going to start with you, Emily. What's your number? I'm going to go with... Um, a number that I'm sure Felix will be really into. It's 1,024. That is the number of potential topping combinations on Burger King's <laughs> signature burger, the Whopper. What? <laughs> Which is turning 64 years old, apparently. And Burger King is promoting that by charging only 34 cents for a Whopper this That's weekend a good deal. because the original price, um, it, this is a common tactic from some companies like McDonald's, I think did um, 63 cent Egg McMuffins recently, like retro prices. And I just want to encourage all companies to do a retro price here and there for all of us. Retro rents. Let's <laughs> let's get into it. I think it's a good strategy. And um, now I want a burger. So that's my number. I'm not sure I've ever had a Whopper. Here we are. I think they're good. I don't know. I haven't had one since I was like a teenager, but I should. Pr- we talk about them a lot in the Peck household, but then we like chicken out and just make burgers at home. <laughs> that's probably the way to do it my, my number is a little bit old but I just found it this week so that's why I'm doing it this week is 19% which is the proportion of employees at the Oregon Department of Corrections who have managed to get a religious exemption against getting vaccinated apparently they've all discovered this religious conviction that they don't want to take the vaccine the Oregon Department of Corrections, unlike many other states, by the way, other states have just been like, no, what are you talking about? What religion are you? That religion doesn't say you can't take a, the vaccine, you know, whatever. Oregon, on the other hand, seems to say religion is a deeply personal thing. If you have decided that you belong to a religion of one that says you don't need to take the vaccine, then that's fine. It's amazing how much variation there is between states and even between different state institutions within a single state. And I will add that even the Christian scientists, which is the one religion that seems to be most 
adamant about like do not do anything med- medical um even they have not said that their members shouldn't take the vaccine they're agnostic on that one. So are there so any speak. religious groups that are saying that? Not that I've found. So people just make it up? They're like, oh, it's against my, my religion. But Exactly. And that's okay. They just got it. Okay, cool, cool, cool. That's the BuzzFeed Union negotiating tactic should be. Okay, so raises are against my, my number is... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what is my number? My number is 54,556,975. And that is part of the name of the company formerly known as Square's crypto division. And that the full name is TBD5456975, which is a name that according to lore, they chose based on a numerology report... (laughs) which they have in fact posted to Twitter, that's like, oh yeah, this name gives you a dynamic destiny, entitling the holder to a high position, power, money, and recognition in society. Bravely meet the unexpected, and you will be happy to discover that you have become a prosperous and prominent figure in the society. Okay, so to be clear, Block has a number of different subsidiaries. Correct. There's Square, which we know. There's Cash App, which we also know, and seems to be the main locus, or historically it's been the main locus for Jack's like crypto dreams. He's like, you can use it to buy Bitcoin, you can buy Bitcoin on Cash App. There is Tidal, which was the music streaming service that never really took off and then got sold for pennies to Square for reasons that no one entirely understands. And then... There is this last subsidiary, which was, help me out here, Stacey, what does it do? Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, if if you go to TBD54566975 on Twitter, Twitter, all the bio says is Bitcoin. So, and was it acquired or is it like a little sort of skunk works within the company? It's, it or does, like- it seems skunk worksy. Um, so if you look at some of the actual things that they have written about it, it's kind of like R&D for various things. <laughs> this Twitter account is wild. There's 42,500 <laughs> followers and the, the account itself follows only one person and his name is Greg. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's truly incredible. <laughs> Strong, strong recommend checking this out. Okay. Um, We will talk a little bit about wild Twitter accounts in Slate Plus, but otherwise, thanks for listening. We will be back on Monday with, I'm just going to come out and say, the best Slate Money succession yet. It's an awesomely amazing one. Watch the show on Sunday. Listen to the recap on Monday. We have Rachel Syme from The New Yorker talking all about succession. And then back the following Saturday with another regular Slate Money. We we have like very religious corrections officers and (laughs) what is happening today? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, man. (laughs) All right. uh, Is it too early to start drinking? Okay. (laughs) 
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.